0: Our first scripture reading this morning is Isaiah 55, 1 through 9, and I am reading from the Good News Bible today. Isaiah 55, 1 through 9. Hey there, all you who are thirsty, come to the water. Are you penniless? Come anyway, buy and eat. Come buy your drinks, buy wine and milk, buy without money, everything's free. Why do you spend your money on junk food, your hard-earned cash on cotton candy? Listen to me. Listen well. Eat only the best. Fill yourself with only the finest. Pay attention now. Come close. Listen carefully to my life-giving, life-nourishing words. I'm making a lasting covenant commitment with you, the same that I made with David. Sure, solid, enduring love. I set him up as a witness to the nations, made him a prince and leader of the nations, and now I'm doing it to you. You'll summon nations you've never heard of, and nations who've never heard of you will come running to you. Because of me, your God, because the Holy of Israel has honored you, seek God while he's here to be found. Pray to him while he's close at hand. Let the wicked abandon their way of life and the evil their way of thinking. Let them come back to God who is merciful. Come back to our God who is lavish with forgiveness. I don't think the way you think. The way you work isn't the way I work, God's decree. For as the sky soars high above earth, so the way I work surpasses the way you work, and the way I think is way beyond the way you think. The word of God for the people of God.
1: Thanks be to God. I apologize, I left, and it's my turn again. Our, um, our next scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 9. I believe it's 1 through 9? 3 through 10. I'm going to keep reading then. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 10. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate of spiritual food, and all of them drank of spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and the rock that was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness, These things happened as a warning to all so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. No, we should put Christ to the, nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did, and they died from snake bites. And don't grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us that they were written down to warn us. If you do not think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall to evil. The temptation in your life are no different than what the others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you the way out so that you may endure. The word of God for the people of God.
2: Our gospel text today is from the gospel of Luke chapter 13, and we will be reading verses 1 through 9. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, Do you think that because the Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were worse offenders than all others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and I have found none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? The gardener replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. The word of God for the people of God. As we continue in this time of Lent, we continue to focus on preparation, on pruning, and on growing our hearts and spirits just as the buds are starting to grow on the trees. We have this opportunity to come out of hibernation, to stretch our weary legs and walk in newness of life as we prepare to walk the road of the cross. There are words that we hear during this season more than just about any other, and one of those words comes with some baggage. Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. Repent of your sins. For some of us, hearing this word reminds us of preachers on street corners with a soapbox and a megaphone. For some of us, This word has been used like a hammer, slamming us in the face in the hands of those who see a speck in our eyes while ignoring the plank in their own. Some of us, this word might have been a sword that is cut deep, separating us from our families and our loved ones. So why do we continue to use this word? Why do we continue to focus on it? Why do we continue to even have a season of repentance in the first place? Jesus tells us why in the gospel text today. Jesus tells us that it saves our lives. You see, in our text today, Jesus is doing the best impression of his cousin, John the Baptist, he can muster. He's standing up there and saying to his fellow Galileans, telling them to repent, for the kingdom of God is near. In the text before the one that we read today, he says Basically, so you see the clouds and know that means it's going to rain. You feel a wind coming from the south and know that it's about to get hot. How do you not know what time it is? How do you not know that it is the time of the kingdom coming? But as I've said a thousand times before, and I will say a thousand times again, at this time, folks around Jesus did not know what the kingdom of God meant. They thought it meant something completely different from what Jesus meant. They didn't understand what Messiah meant. They thought that it meant a political figure, a military figure, a liberating force that would save them from Pilate and from Rome. So they say, they respond to Jesus as he's telling them this, hey, did you hear about our kinfolk that got murdered by Pilate? We have no way of knowing why they ask this question. We have no understanding of their motives. Are they in grief? Maybe. Could these have been cousins or nephews or nieces or brothers or sisters or friends? Could they have been trying to rile Jesus up with righteous anger as only these kind of stories of an enemy attacking loved ones can do? whatever reason, they're informing Jesus of a wrong, of an injustice, of those around them who were killed unjustly. But unjust killings are sadly something that has not ended. They are as old as Cain and Abel, and they continue every day here. Just last week, we prayed For the two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, who were shot up by a white supremacist during their Friday prayers, where 50 people were killed and more than 100 more were wounded. Mass shootings, bombings, executions, wars all lead to lives cut short too soon. When told of these Galileans who were killed, Jesus asks, why do you think they died? Do you think... Their sins were worse than any other Galileans out here. It's like Jesus is saying, do you think they deserved it? Do you think they're worse than you or me and that's why this happened? Jesus says, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus continues by pointing towards a disaster that happened when a tower in Jerusalem fell and killed 18 people. Again, are these 18 any worse than those others just like them? No, Jesus says. And we know this. Disasters like this are just as expectant in daily life as breathing, it seems. We hear stories all the time of planes crashing, houses burning, earthquakes bringing buildings down. you will know I'm taking a trip this afternoon to Boston. I don't know if you will know about this. I'm taking a business trip to go learn about digital librarianship. But as soon as I booked my flight, Alicia looked at me and said, you best go look at those planes and make sure none of them are 737 MAX 8s. Those don't stay up, from what I understand. We position ourselves as best we can to mitigate disasters. We get insurance. We make sure that the houses are built to code. We do everything we can to make sure that those disasters will not befall on us, but they don't keep them from striking. Storms show up in our lives when we least expect them. Are those who suffer in these disasters any worse or somehow not God's people? Are they lacking in faith? No, Jesus says, but unless we repent, you'll perish just as they did. This text has been read a thousand times in a thousand different ways. But repentance is one of those words that we have to be careful with that we have to consider what we're saying and what it means because there's so many ways to preach it wrong. It's so scary to preach it wrong that when I was looking this week to see what people were going to talk about, so many of them were just saying, is there a way we can skip this? The lectionary is good because it causes us to pay attention to the uncomfortable. Some have preached this by saying that a relationship with Christ will somehow save us from injustice and calamity. but We know this isn't the case because for every mosque or school shot up, a church is shot up just the same way. Fires, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, illnesses, and other maladies don't check your church attendance prior to striking. Some other folks might preach it as poor, unrepentant Galileans. Pilate got to them before Jesus did. So they're in hell now. Uh, you go, Do your best to repent. Don't even get me started on those 18 godless Israelites who got squished. But this is not the God I believe Jesus is representing here. These are not sinners in the hands of an angry God who works through the sword of Pilate and delights in squishing sinners. Instead, we see the God Jesus is speaking of in the parable that follows. Because Jesus continues the line of questioning with the parable, it is as if he is answering this line of questioning with this parable. Jesus speaks of a fig tree that doesn't bear fruit. The owner of the fig tree comes and looks at the fig tree to find it fruitless. So he goes and finds his gardener and orders the gardener to cut the tree down. The tree is wasting good soil, the owner says. So the gardener pleads with the owner, asking to give him another year to dig around it, to fertilize it, and to see if it provides fruit next year. To go with the root of the sinners in the hand of an angry God, understanding of the text, God is the owner who comes to find the tree, who is us, sinners, or Israel, however you want to look at it, fruitless and barren and decides to cut it down. But Jesus, the gardener, pleads to the Father to give him one more year to try and save the tree. And if that doesn't work, then they can cut it down. I would assume many of y'all have heard a reading of this text or texts like it almost exactly like that. I know I have. But I think this reading is missing out on a very important point to this parable. The owner claims the soil is good. The owner blames the tree for wasting good soil, but anybody who has tried to plant something knows that that's not how this works. Good soil leads to good plants, normally. Trees don't just decide to be stubborn. Trees grow where they're planted, and this planter, owner, planted a fig tree in a vineyard. Vineyard doesn't mean figs, it means vines, it means grapes. He put it in the wrong place to start, but the gardener knows better. The gardener realizes the soil isn't as good as the owner thinks it is. The gardener realizes the soil isn't providing what the tree needs to grow, so the gardener plans to make changes. The gardener plans to completely flip the script The gardener is going to remove that soil that's not as good as the owner thinks it is in the first place and replace it with manure. Letting y'all know that change, good change, stinks sometimes. The gardener isn't just going to throw some water on the tree and see what happens. So I provide to y'all a different reading of this parable. We are the owners. And our hearts, our lives our spiritual walk, our impact on the world is a tree. No matter how good we think we are, no matter how good we think our soil is, on its own, we bear no fruit. It's when we repent, when we finally turn to God and admit that it's not working, that God with his infinite green thumb, does what God does best. God starts removing the things that we think help us, that actually hurt us. God starts pruning and shaping us and replacing the bad with the good that will actually nourish our lives. And it can cause our pride to take a hit because the things we need might look like manure to the world. We think what the world has given us, we think what we have built up for ourselves, our money, our power, all the toys we can muster is enough to fill our lives. But instead, it's no good for our hearts. We should be replacing it with simplicity, with silence, with selflessness, with the ways of God that bring us closer to the image of God that we're meant to be. Because that's what good soil looks like. That's the soil that looks good, that does good work, that bears good fruit, that provides the nutrients that we need. Because God knows what we need. So those killed by Pilate, those killed in the accident in the Tower of Siloam, Jesus isn't saying they were killed because they hadn't repented. What Jesus is saying is they hadn't lived because they hadn't repented. Jesus is calling us to be more, calling us to be better, and calling us to let him get his hands dirty and change us. But we first got to look to the gardener. We first got to be hungry for more. We've got to be okay with getting our hands dirty along with God because this isn't something God can do on his own. And we have to be okay with letting God take God's time. The gardener doesn't say, oh, let's just go and buy some figs and staple them up to the tree. That fixes the problem. The gardener says, this will take a year. And it will take a year of work. And yes, the gardener says, you know, if this year doesn't go the way that I'm saying it will you can go ahead and cut that tree down. But that's not an ultimatum or a warning or a threat. That's a gardener that's sure in his skills. That's God not saying that there is a 90-day, if you don't like it, return it. No harm, no foul. Here's store credit, way to life. That's God giving a guarantee, a promise, a covenant that God's got this that if we let God get knee-deep in the mud with us, that there's no telling what God might do. There's no telling what fruit will be the result. So let's let God start digging in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, and in the life of this church. Let's find the dry, lifeless parts of ourselves and offer them up to God so that God can start replacing them with something life-giving and something life-changing. Let's pray.